A lot of wisdom in what Pastor Tom had to say there in terms of how we approach our service, who we emulate when we do. Um, I, I also uh, want to mention, as he was talking about our giving and things, is always an awkward thing to bring up. We never know how to talk about giving in the church today. Uh, we certainly don't want to shy away from the privilege and responsibility that we have in our worship to give. Um, our our bookkeeper slash treasurer would say, don't always tell everybody they're doing an amazing job giving. Because <laughs> there's still some things that need to, you know. So we, we hired him to look after the numbers. But pastorally speaking, we're like, okay, this is a bigger thing that we're, that we're aiming for towards here. And it's an act of worship and stewardship in all that we do. And so whenever we're having those conversations in, in grace and understanding, he's gently nudging us going, yeah, but tell him that, that we didn't make budget this week. So anyway, we didn't make budget this week. Wait, uh, I don't know. We may, maybe we did. I've gotten really good at not looking at those things. So, uh, I've got other things to focus on, and the Lord's taking care of us in great ways and stuff. So, like I said, giving, always awkward. Fortunately, I'm not preaching on giving this morning. We can all go, Phew. The only reason why I would say it's good that I'm not talking about giving this morning is because what I'm talking about this morning is probably equally uncomfortable. And uh, it was a, an unplanned and terrible setup to get into a situation or a subject of the scriptures that is difficult for us to wrap our heads around because it's a call that that causes friction against the, the grain of our souls. It's not what we're it's not what we're in tuned or what we feel wired to embrace this uh, concept that's coming out of our passage in first Peter this morning. And there are a couple of cautions that I would throw out to you and to me as we come to this text this morning, because I have to be uh, uh, concerned to not approach the text like I've had some people explain to me in, in like uh, sermon structure and teaching kind of environments and stuff is I can't be I can't use the scripture this morning like a drunk would use a lamppost. You go, a drunk using a lamppost. We know what a lamppost is there for is to shine light and to illuminate. But if I'm inebriated and I see that that lamppost is there for structure, I can lean against something and I can use it for stability, but it's not what it was created or put there for. I have to be careful that I don't come to the word of God and say, I want to be able to use this to, to, to serve my own agenda, my own purposes, to get a message out to you that I want you all to go, oh, okay, so I know where he's coming from now. Where I'm coming from isn't really that relevant to the scriptures and the interpretation of it. We have to be faithful to the word of God and to use it for how it was intended. On the hearing side, we also have to be warned not to caveat too much of what we hear from the scriptures. In particular, when we come to a passage like this, the yeah buts in our mind are going to fly. Yeah, but you, you didn't mention this aspect. Yeah, but you, you didn't talk about how we we're supposed to apply it over here. Yeah, but you didn't, you didn't also. And so there's not a lot we can do about that because that's the way our minds work. We live in a context. We walk through life on a daily basis. It's very difficult to come into an environment like this for one hour a week. If your mind isn't being renewed or transformed by the scriptures and the principles of God's word throughout the week, if you're coming in and you're like, Hey, this is my download hour. I'm going to I'm going to absorb what the scriptures have to say for me and then I'm going to go off and and see how long it can last and how I venture out into the world afterwards. If we're not careful, we can caveat the truth of the word of God too much because it's very foreign to how we are navigating the world around us. So, I would challenge you as I've had to challenge myself in studying this week, how many yeah buts are flying through my mind? And if I find myself being a little distracted with all of those yeah buts, it's telling me that I'm having a hard time accepting the principle or the truth of this passage. I'm just warning you, you're going to have a hard time accepting it. I have a hard time accepting it. I would almost rather preach on anything else this week other than the fact that this has also given me great comfort and purpose over these last many months. So, what we need to be careful to do is we come to our text in 1 Peter 2, verse 13, we'll get there in a little bit, is we have to be careful to discern Peter's intention as we do each week 
for writing this, and then we have to extract from it his instruction. What is he having us do? And he's going to make it very, very clear that his instruction is going to be given to us in the form of the example of the life of Jesus. So we're going to wrestle with that. We're going to apply it. We're going to ponder it. But the uh, the challenge that we have is to to receive it. And we're going to get, have some plain talk as far as how this affects us as a church at faith in 2020 because of the strange year that we're having, because we are walking through perhaps the greatest controversy to ever hit our church, which I was so excited to walk into. This is really great first year of lead pastorship. This is awesome and fun. Uh, but this is really the strangest days hitting the history of this church to my knowledge and awareness. And so we have to speak plainly about the day that we're in as it relates to what we're going to see from the scriptures today. So I'll do that, hopefully not wading into the nitty gritty too, too much and slowing the conversation down. What are we talking about in first Peter? We're talking about the word submission and submission is never our first Desire. You and I don't wake up in the morning. You and I don't apply life going, I really hope I get to subordinate myself to someone else's wants and wishes today. I hope somebody tr- seeks to control my behavior and, and direct me in what I'm going to do or not going to do. This is not the inkling that we have. We wake up or we enter into life as a general rule of thumb, thinking about how we can get the rest of the events of life to subordinate to our wishes, wills, and desires. We could come to this text this morning. I know I'm giving it a lot of setup, but we could come to this text this morning and go to one extreme and say, well, I'm going to, uh, when it comes to things of the law, when we're talking about submission, I am going to take the law into my own hands. I'm going to agree with the laws. I'm going to obey the laws I agree with. I'll disobey the ones that I don't agree with. We've seen those examples play out in parts of the world and even in our own country in certain pockets of it where people have established their own set of rules and and you enter into their territory at your own risk. That's one extreme. Or we can come to this with the example of Jesus. We can look at this, this passage and over apply in the opposite direction and say that Jesus only came to give us the example of always taking it on the chin. That Jesus came to always be somebody's punching bag or somebody's welcome mat. That he was always just giving, giving, giving to the extent that he'd never stand up for himself, never stand up for what's right, and it cost him his life. We've seen places and people and religions apply these kinds of passages that way. That Jesus is their kind of hippie figure of motivation, that he's passive, he's meek, he's mild. He would never stand up for himself or anything else. He just took it on the chin. There's error to both those extremes, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time in them. I'm saying them up front so we can ex- we can assume to some degree that those extremes are bad applications of the passage that we're looking at today. So before we get into the text, let's take a moment and pray about these things. Um, I need it, you need it, and the Spirit needs to be able to move in our ears and our hearts. So let's pray to Him this morning. God, I want to thank You, Lord, for bringing us together. I thank You, Lord, for Your Word, and I thank You, Lord, for these attentive people. Thank You, Lord, for the time to come together, actually in physical presence, to worship and and to sing the amazing songs that we got to sing and the ways that it causes us to reflect on Your goodness. I thank you for those that are are are, are looking in and are are watching us from home and are engaged in great numbers, Lord. And 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 uh, I just pray that through all of this, Lord, as we navigate all that has been thrust upon us, that as we rally around your word, that we would come to a place of submission to your authority and to your grace in all things, Lord. Build within your church at this time unity of spirit, unity, of practice, Lord. It does not mean we know that we will always agree, but we can and should act like one another's brothers and sisters. And so I pray, Lord, that you would grant this church with profound and special unity, one that shocks the world around us, one that inspires and encourages the body of Christ in the greater area. I pray, Lord, for these things in your name. Amen. All right. So as we come to our passage, uh, when we before we start verse 13, I'm going to make the, the first point here that we still submit 
to those in office. I figured I would just start with the most controversial statement, hit it right out of the gate so that we could set up Peter's words to us in verse 13. What's going on as Peter is penning these words is that Rome has great control over the area. They are exercising their authority in full force. And so there's a lot of different rules and regulations. There's an environment that's playing out there. But Christians are striving to navigate their faith in a time of growing but general oppression. Not necessarily always specific that every Christian felt like their life was at stake. Every church felt like they couldn't say they were meeting. I mean, it hadn't gotten to that point yet as Peter is addressing the scattered about in the, uh, in the region. But there was this general oppression that kind of felt like the Roman uh, government was concerned. They were suspicious. They were skeptical of the church's motives of the angles that they would play. There were accusations being lobbied against Christians of all different kinds and locations and things. They were, they were being accused by Nero specifically of insubordination and resistance and they became his scapegoat to accomplish other things politically and so he would he would track down uh the individual Christians, he would persecute them and in, in some instances he would uh he would um um, execute them and and even use them as human torches for his dinner parties so that Christians under Nero's ugly reign would be the example of how you don't cross his government. Nero made these public examples to make some very clear statements and this is the environment that Peter writes these very difficult words to hear. Verse 13, he says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So again, confusing words had to have been extremely difficult concepts and phrases to swallow. And I'm sure there were a host of questions upon the first reading after the, the, the courier came and delivered Peter's letter to the churches in the area and to the gatherings. They were all probably like, yeah, but what is Peter talking about here? Every human institution. Do I respect the office or the officer, Peter? I need clarification. He says, obey every human institution. In other words, the, the creation of of man to develop the systems and those sorts of things would tend towards the interpretation of this being you respect the office even if you have no personal respect for the person occupying it every human institution he said so who in the world would have come up with this idea that peter is propagating who would have who would have said that the way to victory is through surrender or submission or subjection subordination any of the other words that we want to use who would come up with this so peter continues in verse 15 for this is the will of god that by doing good you should put to silence he's not saying so that you might have a strategy for victory or that you might have some good deeds accomplished from it he says that you would win by putting to silence the ignorance of foolish people. God planned this. We talked about last week. God planned that our honorable might have even been two weeks ago. Now our honorable, our beautiful lifestyle would baffle those who have predetermined not to give God's voice any hearsay. What's going on in that phrase when he says to put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, you have to interpret that as people who have said, I know some people are listening to this quote unquote God. I know some say he speaks to us or that he wrote this Bible or something, but I believe it's all man-made. I believe that they're all falsely following uh, a God of of, uh, of no power or, or consequence or anything. And so we are not hearing it. We have no intention of giving him voice in our lives. And he's saying this is the ignorance, the, the unawareness of foolish people. So it was God's will that by doing what we should do, their jaws would drop and go, what? We thought we had them figured out. We thought we knew what they would do next and they didn't do it. And that we would put their, the ignorance of foolish people to silence. 
Verse 16, he says, so live as people who are free. But we don't always feel free, do we? He says, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So I don't understand, Peter, what am I free to do? You're saying I should subject myself to people that are uh, burning us for his dinner parties, and you're supposed to show honor to the office of those that we don't respect. What am I supposed to do with this? And and he says, "But, but live as people who are free. Free to do what? Our freedom never meant that we wouldn't have to answer to anybody. We aren't free unto ourselves, right? So this is the transformation that the gospel has brought for all of us. You and I remember what it was like to be free to ourselves, don't we? We, we remember what it was like to be our own bosses before we came to Christ in, in the spiritual or in the lifestyle sense. And we understood, just like the illustration we shared last week about the train jumping off the track, we understood that, that our freedom to go and do what we want only buried us into the ground further. And so it was a false freedom, made us feel good in the short term, but promised us no real freedom to continue to behave and to do and to produce as we were created to. That, that we had to def- redefine what freedom actually meant. So Peter's doing it for us. He goes, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but instead living as someone who answers, serves, waits on the will of God. Living as servants of God. Does, does Peter really mean what I think he means in this? Is this really how we're defining submission? By Peter's words, he doubles down, maybe quadruples down. If you look at the way this is worded in verse 17, he says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. I think he means what he's saying. I I want to, um, I want to be able to just talk about all my experiences over the last several months and share with you the things I've heard and some of the actions that have been taken. I want to share all that as it results of this one verse. I want to be careful of not venting and self-justifying and all those kinds of things, but I think it's important for us to look at this and see what practically this verse would change in our behavior and our conduct for one another if we just took each phrase individually. He says, honor everyone. You and I and everybody out there have been created in the image of the one that we claim to serve, love, and worship. So everybody gets a fundamental baseline of respect from person to person for the child of God. <laughs> Let's just camp on that for a second. Honor everyone. But he escalates. He says, so therefore, love the brotherhood. We're going to throw in sisterhood in that as well. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if we sought unity and companionship and friendship and community and support and all the things that we've talked about as Peter has started this letter, if that was our main focus in the body of Christ, what would our actions, behaviors, and ideas really look like? Love the brotherhood. Now, the only place he tells us to fear is not for those in office, not even to Nero himself. He says, fear God. So if I approach this passage, if I approach this instruction and I say, okay, so the person that's supposed to make my knees not quite literally, the person who's supposed to cause within me this awe and respect of like, I don't want to mess with his plan. It is the Lord and not the emperor. So as mighty and powerful and threatening as the physical emperor was, he says, fear God, but honor the emperor. We are not to fear those who are in charge of human institutions. Instead, it's what we give to them because of the one that we do fear. And I've got to be honest with you, just as a side note, this has been the uh, biggest motivating factor for all of the discussions that we've had as a leadership team about what we do with our church in these uh, uh, very, um, (laughs) what did I almost say? Unprecedented times. I was trying to look for an uglier word than unprecedented. (laughs) 
its habits are hard to break. That our ultimate fear, if you will, is not about litigation. It isn't about expense. It isn't even about what, how many of the people of a church we might lose. Our fear is, has the Lord made something clear to us and would we be in disobedience to it if he's made something clear to us? So, Peter's first instruction would be to us in 2020, yes, we still submit to those in office. Secondly, I think as he's moving on, we would say we still submit to those who manage us. He's moving out of the civil kind of political governmental environment and he's taking it a little closer to home for those that would be in his audience in some of the situations that they have either found themselves in or placed themselves in and that being servants or what we would refer to as slaves, though we're going to have to define that a little bit. Verse 18, he says, so servants... Be subject to your masters with all respect. Yuck, gross, I want to throw up in my mouth, right? When we think of this, we know what we mean when we talk about slavery in America. There can't be any justification that would sound like, or that would sound like Peter is giving any justification for any of that institution. And, and certainly he's not. Peter's whole approach to this passage is to talk to those primarily who can't do much to change the circumstances they're in. He's giving hope to the one who feels the oppression. He's giving hope to the one who feels like there's no way this is going to get any better. He's not necessarily talking to the people that should be either slapped on the wrist or worse. He's not really doing business with those who are causing oppression, who are causing conflict. He's talking to those who are living up under it and how to find hope in it. Now, honestly, in Peter's context here, the the slavery or the servants is not the same as what we would all say was a very ugly period in American history and now continues to be debated, fought over, and all the other things that are happening. It's different. I had somebody mention to me before, hey, I've got a I've got to answer a friend online who's saying that the Bible says nothing about slavery. Where do I go to help them understand what the Bible says about that? And and this kind of starts getting there on the surface, but isn't talking about that question. It isn't answering that question. This would be more comparable to when we enlist in the military because the military says, if you serve us for a time period, we'll pay for your college. So you go and you sign, you say, okay, I'm all yours because of something you're promising me on the other end. And then what they do is they get you in boot camp and they just drill down on you, right? Yelling, screaming, shouting in your face because I own you, maggot. That's a little bit of what what Peter's addressing here is he's like, you've made an arrangement, which is what so much was was happening so much with this idea of servanthood. That, that because of debts or because of an opportunity to maybe establish themselves or to have a place to live or something, so many people were giving into this system of slavery, but it was contractual for the most part. And there was still an expectation that the master would have to treat them fairly or would have to let them go after a period. In fact, even God in the Old Testament, when he was addressing this system, he said that every seven years... Those that had servants were to give them the opportunity to go free. Now, if the servant after those seven years says, no, I got it kind of good here. I have no intention of going anywhere. Then they would kind of get branded with this kind of earring or something along those lines. And they'd say, now you're there with them for life. And, and so there was a, an, an understanding of like, don't, you can't take advantage of these people. They, they, they need you at their lowest point or they have something they need to get out of it. And it's also on the quote unquote slave owner to not take full advantage of it and to never let them free. You have to be working towards their freedom in cooperation. And the scriptures never allow for us to, to ever justify a, a, a slavery based on racism or an unending commitment. You're just there because we've, we've taken over your life of nobody's, um, volition. It's never allowed for in scripture. In fact, Paul even says, as he's giving Timothy a list of really ugly sins, he says in 1 Timothy 1 verse 8, Through 10, he says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. So we know the context he's talking about. He says some of the specifics 
He listed many in verse 10. He says, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers. An enslaver is someone who took someone against their will and brought them into their own ownership, which we still see happening around the world today for other uh, devious purposes. And perhaps the ugliest black spot on humanity today is this enslaving of other innocent people, liars, perjurers, or whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Revelation mentions this in terms of the uh, the condemnation against um, the, the great whore of Babylon and all these other things. So the scripture does not give a pass to some of the things that we know from our history. So Peter is not saying that any of this is okay. He's saying if you are in this system, this is how you're supposed to live while you are up under it. In fact, the entire gospel, this is the point I made to the person asking me that question, the entire gospel is about freeing you and me from the slavery of our own sin. The whole, as Pastor Tom mentioned earlier, the redemptive story that the kids are studying through the gospel project, the whole redemptive story and the history of God working with mankind is to free us from the bondage of our own sin. So this, again, is what Peter is addressing. Again, we, we have our yabats. We go, but really, Peter, all bosses be subject to all? He continues in verse 18, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Just because a system wasn't approved doesn't mean that mankind in their sin wouldn't take full advantage. So there would be unjust masters and bosses. You and I have all had them. We've, we've worked for people that we loved working for and some that we couldn't stand. So he says, all of your masters, the good and also the unjust, because there will be credit given where credit is due. He says in verse 19, he says, for this is a gracious thing. When we think of gracious, we think of polite or that sort of thing. And it is all of that. But gracious is more of this language of credit, that it is credited to you. It is a gracious thing. It counts for something. When you and I are mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? You know, you messed up, you you blew it on the job, you were terrible at it, or you willfully um, uh, lost money for your boss or anything like that, and you get retribution for it, or you get punished for it. What credit to you is if you go, well, I endured it, I took my lickings with a smile, well, you deserved them. Maybe you shouldn't have been smiling so much. Instead, he says, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure this is a gracious or credited thing in the sight of God. Before coming to faith uh, some many years ago, um, I was working for a uh, consulting company in Boston that that uh, they did um, high-tech consulting for some companies that were trying to figure some things out like um, how long their products should stay on the shelf or how they keep their costs down for getting all their materials in and all these sorts of things and so we had a product development side and a supply chain side. The supply chain side, I'm sorry, I'm getting off on the, on the details here. But my job was to sell a service that allowed the big consulting guys to get a foot in the door and come and spend many months on these projects that would cost a lot, a lot of money. And I was responsible for selling this little online benchmarking tool that allowed people to establish a team, spend a few months, figure out how they're doing. As the company started to shift, they were, they had lots of salespeople. They had, well, I say lots. It was only a company of like 40 people. And then they decided to go down in half. And there was layoffs and they said, we are going to get rid of our sales department. And I was doing some customer service at the time. They said, you're going to be our sales department. I was like, great. I'm sure I'll be great at that. Um, I don't like doing anything salesy wise if it's not genuine or honest or something like that. So I wasn't sure how that was all going to go. They set some commission structures for me. They said, if you do X, Y, and Z, you'll get paid this amount and everything. And so I was like, well, this is a neat challenge, kind of a new opportunity. And I actually get to make more money than what my just basic salary was providing at the time. So I said, absolutely, let's go for it. And uh, what was clear was a couple of things um, were happening at the same time. On one end, 
I had an easier sales process because these are the same people I had been holding their hands for the last couple of years, helping them use the product and everything. So they trusted me. So I looked like this great salesperson just because they knew my name and I didn't have to meet a bunch of new people. The other thing that was going on is that the company was trying a new process of how to pay their salespeople commission and they way underestimated how successful it would be. So I get to do a lot of quick, easy sales and I see my numbers just cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. And what do we do? When we see a commission coming in, we start pre-spending it in our mind. I'm not saying I went out and racked up credit cards, but I had plans for the money. Our young, struggling family in the city of Boston with one income could really use it for a lot of other things, pay down a debt here. or I had it all locked in what I was going to do with this money. And I had been building this for nearly a year. When it became clear to the management there that they overswung in terms of what they could commit to me, they started trying to figure out how to explain away some of my sales. Well, you didn't really do this one all by yourself. I remember also answering an email for this and doing that kind of thing. And so they started having to take away some of my commissions. Now, in hindsight, I know why they needed to do that. I don't think they were really doing it maliciously. They just, it was all being figured out. It's kind of like how we're going through things this year. It's like everyone's giving each other a lot of room, a lot of grace, because no one knows how to do this thing yet. And so um, I remember a meeting with two bosses, the general manager and my immediate sales boss. And I remember them explaining to me why I wasn't going to get all the money that I had already mentally spent in my mind. Now, They knew what I had been trained for in Bible college. They knew that I was serving as a kind of like an associate pastor of a church in the area and stuff. They knew who I was, what I was about. I wanted my work to reflect my testimony in Christ. I had spent a couple of years just being this helpful servant type guy, doing whatever they asked of me and everything. And what surprised me in that meeting was how much all of that credit that I had built up, I lost for myself. Because as they were explaining to me that the dollars that I expected were not coming in, I found myself getting shorter of breath. My voice was starting to change in my responses to them. I started leveling certain accusations. I wasn't getting nasty or shouting or yelling. I still kind of, I think for them, they would have said, well, this is what we expected. I mean, we just told this guy he's not going to make you. We expect some back and forth. But they didn't expect it from me. And I didn't expect it from me. What the Lord was showing me in that moment as I'm having this outer body experience, like, dude, get a hold of yourself. This is just money. You're going to be okay. You're blowing your testimony in front of these people who are trying to work with you here and everything. And, and I just, I, I still remember that day nearly 20 years down the road as one of these major failures in how I could not keep it together because I had not subjected myself to the rightful oppression and somewhat persecution, not for my Christian testimony, but for business reasons that I was legitimately feeling attacked by. So it wasn't as though I should have just gone along to get along. Oh, shucks. Hey, another day. (laughs) We'll figure out the thousands of dollars some other way. It was going to sting. It was supposed to sting. In our human experience, these things happen. We can't wrap our brains around it. Even people on the other end aren't always intending to do this to you, but such is life. we got to do this. This is the call we're making. And I remember going through this moment just thinking, you are not holding it together well. What testimony do they see coming from me who is admitted to giving my life to the service of God, to, to losing my cool for the first time ever with them over dollar bills. See, what Peter is saying here is that credit goes to the person who is willing to lose their personal comforts or even their means of human security because of their devotion to God. Now, I'm not saying that everybody needs to apply that situation like I am. I'm saying that was the conviction that I had in that moment because I knew who I was and what I was trying to build, and I knew what they were expecting of me, and I gave them something quite different. The yeah buts would lead us to say, well, hey, it's not right. There was probably something in writing you could go back to, and you can... Sometimes we have to do those things. Sometimes we have to go back and, and play within their system to say, look, this is what we agreed on, and it isn't fair, and all these kinds of things. But we have to use that as perhaps a final resort as we are trying to find our way through these murky waters of submission. How do I show honor to those I disagree with? How do I subordinate myself to a system that was not bent towards looking out for me? 
These are the things that Peter is addressing. All right, we've got to move on just a little bit more here. The last point I'm going to extract from our passage comes from the verses 21 through 25, and it's simply this. Our reason or our why for doing what we do is still bigger than our simple act of submission. Some of the questions that I've received specifically about why are we opening up rooms 50 at a time? Why are we adhering to what's been mandated as just our personal experience? And I, I kind of wanted to say this at the outset, and I didn't, but please understand that this passage is so much bigger than what faith is doing during a, a quote-unquote pandemic, whether you believe it is one or not. That this is a principle of life that's going to follow us well after COVID is an afterthought. That this is something that we're going to have to wrestle and apply with. But it is very pertinent to what we're going through now. So I thought I would share some of the common questions. This is not an individual question from just an individual. These are the questions that some have asked me over and over again. So I thought what I would do is uh, take some time to walk through the last part of this passage and dip back into some earlier ones to answer a few questions. The first question I'm going to list here is, what would Jesus do during this time? Well, that's not really easy to answer because Jesus didn't live on this earth and we don't have recorded New Testament passages during a COVID-19 kind of situation. So what we do is we apply principles when there aren't specifics given to us. And in 1 Peter 2, Peter continues in verse 21. He says, for to this you have been called because Christ So our example has been set up for us because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So Peter is telling people who are discouraged, who are feeling some oppression and threat and everything. He says, look to Jesus. He's gone through this before for you so that you might follow in his steps. Verse 22, while he was doing it, basically is what he's saying. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled or when he was vilified, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So what would Jesus do? Well, we have here right in the scriptures that he is our example, so it's an appropriate question to ask. And while I just got done saying to you, he didn't necessarily do everything specifically to show us a pattern of how to navigate 2020, it seems as though that Peter is referring to the principles of how he conducted himself as being sufficient for what we do next so that we would follow in his footsteps. He said, don't commit sin. Don't be deceitful while you're doing it. Don't return vilification. Don't threaten in return. Instead, entrust yourself to him who judges justly. You see, Jesus conducted himself to a higher standard than his oppressors. How would he be able to do this? Didn't Jesus know being the the son of God that he would lose the battle in the short term? Didn't he know that as he took it on the chin now that they would feel like, see, I got one up on him. See, Jesus knew that one of two things would happen for them. Either their judgment would come because his father is is just, he judges justly, or their repentance and salvation. Either way, those two reasons alone gave Jesus the ability and the opportunity to endure the short-term loss in order to have the long-term gain. You see, Jesus didn't need to flex now. The plan was victory later. His mission didn't get accomplished if he doesn't submit in the short term. He had to make himself available to captors. He had to make himself available to persecution in order for the whole scenario to be built up and played out. So Jesus is our example. It is a fair question to ask, what would Jesus do? But when we think about what he would do, we have to be honest with passages like this. Another question that we received was, why should we care how the church is perceived perceived to outsiders? It's not like we're going to get a fair shake no matter what we do, right? And the answer would be, you're correct. 
that we should not expect that as the church is trying to do good, whatever that do good is, fill it in, that we'll always get the best press, that we'll always get the, the most favorable compliments, that we know that the system in which we, the, that we are ministering in the midst of in this world is not favorable to those we've defined that the church should just be a soup kitchen and a clothes closet and stay out of everything else. We know that that's the way that America's moving in terms of its general acceptance of the mission of Jesus Christ as seen in the community of the church. So you're right. Another fair question. Why should we care what other people think about our actions right now if they're not going to give us a fair shake? And my answer to that is because the Bible cares about how we're viewed. We've already discussed in chapter 2, verse 12, that Peter said, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Or we already saw that in verse 15, he says, for this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. You see, the scripture cares about us doing our things on a stage, not a physical stage like at the church. The, the churches, the, the, the Bible says that you and I are, are conducting ourselves before a seeing audience. It matters to the Lord for some reason, even though we don't seem to get very far in the short term. So the follow-up question would become, so is there ever a point that we resist or is it always submit, period? It's ironic that we'd say period with an exclamation point. I just want to point that out as we travel by it. Is there ever a point that we're going to resist or are we just in it for the long haul? Whatever they say goes. I put something out on on video a couple weeks ago that, that answered that question. Absolutely, there's a point of resistance. We see it in scripture all the time. That as, as God's people have been told you cannot preach in the name of Jesus or you're not to do this or that, that there have been times of resistance that are very clear that God's people should stand up and say, I'm sorry, but you've just crossed the line. I cannot do this and not disobey my God. But it's when they were clearly against the Lord's will. And you and I need to exercise discernment. We need to exercise patience in determining whether or not that attack is really what we think it is. We have to be willing to endure for a time so that we can rightly judge the best course of action. And as I said at the outset, our natural bent is not to be told what to do. And in Maine, I think we've perfected that natural bent, have we not? I'm a Mainer. It's like it's the thing that was born in my DNA. It's like, no, you're not going to tell me. I'll get to you when I'm ready. We have to be willing to endure for a time because it's probably the opposite of what the Spirit of God in us is calling us to do, that feeling of wanting to just react, stand up for ourselves, protect ourselves. Even Jesus and, and, and even his servant Paul had different responses to oppression depending on the mission at hand. There are times where Jesus, it says right in the scriptures that they sought to take his life. They sought to crucify him because of something he said. And what does Jesus do? He slips through the crowds. If you just took that in isolation, you'd be like, what a wimp. can't believe Jesus wouldn't just take it. I mean, he preached God's word. Why wouldn't he take it? But instead, it wasn't time. The scripture says his time had not yet come. So he slipped through the crowds in order to let this this drama play out to the stage to be built for God's perfect time and in God's perfect way. Paul, at times, would would resist his persecution. He would say, I'm sorry, is it right for you to strike a Roman citizen as he's about ready to get his beating? They're like, oh, we didn't know that was him. We didn't know he had that about. So they went and counseled them and they came back and they said, you're right, let this guy go. There were times where Paul used his rights to escape persecution, and then there are times where he didn't. And even the best theologians sit there and go, I'm not really sure exactly why he'd do it then and not then, but it seems clear the principle is is that wisdom was applied for the circumstances in the moment that it was happening. Still got more to go. Sorry. I'll move quicker. Even Peter was rebuked for his resistance, and I won't have time to go into it, so we're going to skip these passages, but Peter cutting off the ear of the soldier and Jesus saying, Peter, don't do this. Don't you know I have to drink of the cup that my father has given for me to drink? 
Instead, he heals the soldier. So there's times when that resistance was even rebuked by Jesus. You see, our brothers and sisters in Christ are fearful, and I believe rightfully so in a lot of cases. And they're fearful that if we give up ground now, at least strategically speaking, in terms of compliance, that we're going to lose these freedoms that we have to an even greater extent, if not entirely. I share most of their concerns, quite admittedly, and I've said things like this one-on-one as people have come in to see me. But I don't think it's a contradiction in what we're doing. Because taking matters into our own hands prematurely could make us guilty of not trusting the Lord's pruning process and judgment of our nation and its leaders. We cannot presume to know all that God is up to and act as though we know for sure in every situation what the right move is. I shy away from those who see it so clearly in black and white right out of the gate. Probably I lean more towards waiting too long. And that's the work that the Lord's doing in my spirit. But I also think that we can act too hastily. Submission in murky areas reveals our ultimate trust that God's hand will deal with those who have the responsibility to do right with their power. Next week, we're going to be talking about a still an, a, an uncomfortable aspect of this submission in this, or in this uh, realm of husbands and wives as we get into chapter 3 and we look at the first seven verses of the chapter. And I remember as I'm thinking about how this applies, because it isn't just about what we do in government and everything, it also has to do with our marriages and all these things. But again, the tone is preaching to those who are in an oppressive system who don't know their way out and don't know where the hope is found in it. So Peter is delivering an encouragement message. I remember uh, uh, times where I would share counseling sessions with Pastor Bill and there would be a wife who was just really struggling and suffering under the weight of not like overt things. There are some things that are just black and white. You say you don't have to put up with that. But there's other most of the oppression that you and I experience. We can't always put our finger on. It's just against us. It's just a struggle. It's a thing to navigate. And I remember Pastor Bill even saying to a lot of these wives saying, look, because they would say things like, I can't get it through to him that he needs to change. I tell him all the time he needs to be different. And Pastor Bill wisely said, look, God's trying to take a swing at your husband and you won't get out of his way. Submission in your context is to duck. And I remember thinking that's incredible advice because of the fact that we so often want to do God's work for him. And he doesn't, he, he doesn't see us just trusting in his hand to do the work that he's trying to do in the lives of other people around us. Jesus is our provision and our protector, as Peter is going to say. This is where we get to the good news. We're going to go through this, unfortunately, kind of quickly. It's the, it's the, the juiciest part, if you will, it's the greatest sort of central part of our passage. So I know we'll revisit it next week when we get into the next chapter. But Peter is talking about Jesus as our example in verse 24. He says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you are straying like sheep. But now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus is more than our role model. He is our payment. Peter says he bore our sins. John the Baptist and seeing Jesus coming towards the waters that he had been faithfully baptizing people in, in the name of Jesus, the one they hadn't met yet when he sees them for the first time physically, he says, behold, the lamb of God who does what takes away the sins of the world doesn't just come to be that hippie figure for us to think, oh, he's a cool example, really good model for how we should be doing things. He came to take away the sins of the world. Jesus is more than some empty protester who's just good at pointing out everything that's wrong and has no power to do anything about it. He paves the way for change. Peter said that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You see, Jesus gives us his personal presence, not just a set of principles or practices. He moves in. He does the work with and for us. He's more than our cheerleader. He's the shepherd and protector. That's what overseer is really hinting at. He received and healed our wounds, so Jesus guides us home. Remember, the listeners are exiles. They're not homeless. They're just not at their home. So Jesus is guiding them back and he protects them along the way, protects us along the way. 
You see, our biggest reason for giving up so much ground, which is basically submission to anyone, anywhere, pre-COVID, post-COVID, our biggest reason for giving up so much ground in the short term is because we are in Christ and he is in us. So like I said, this is part one of a two-part message. And we have to pursue integrity when handling the subject because when we get into next week's topic, we're going to be talking about that more common day-to-day struggle. And hope for this life is transferable from situation to situation because we are following God's biblical principles. You may not be all that worked up about what the church is or isn't doing during COVID. Maybe this is a nice long break from you to do something else. Maybe you've found new rhythms and patterns. You're like, I'm not really thinking about it a whole lot. It doesn't mean that this subject isn't for you. You may not be going through a particular marriage struggle or anything next, like we're going to talk about next week, but this subject of submission is for all of us. This is a hallmark of God's people is what Peter is getting at, even when the, the circumstances are getting tough. We're learning the principles of proper and godly submission so that we can learn to balance the tension against when to resist and when to comply. And those things are not always easy to navigate, and they do apply on both sides. But we have to acknowledge the tension is overweighted in our humanity towards resistance. None of us want to submit or subordinate. We need the power of Christ through the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom, motivation, and strength to submit to authorities over us. Jesus didn't submit out of weakness or timidity, but out of a fierce determination to do his father's will. No one could say he was a wimp. He didn't lose sight of the ball. His victory came later at the expense of short-term compliance to his oppressors. They felt good in the moment, didn't they? We got one up on him. We got to punch him in the face. We get to drive a spike in his hands. He didn't see it coming. The great leader and savior of the world, and look what we've done to him. And it was just a few short hours later that they realized their mistake. Submission is something that we give to others as our act of service to be like Jesus, not what they take from us. And it's not our ultimate goal to be submissive. Our ultimate goal is to be like Christ. Submission is just one of the many vehicles that we have at our disposal to get there. Would you please stand and pray with me as we prepare for One more song of worship together. Lord, I want to thank you, God, for your words. I thank you, Lord, for your patience on us. Lord, I do not like this subject because it's too close to home. I like to order my own destiny. And and even though, Lord, I know I can trust you, I know that you're, you're good to me and that you're good for me and that you have a plan that I couldn't necessarily have mapped out at all on my own. I just like to be able to make my own way, call my own shots. It's a constant process, Lord, to submit myself to your will. I know that these people in this room and the other room next door and those watching online, Lord, I know we all have that uh, common struggle in our hearts. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your grace that doesn't just flick us off the face of the earth as soon as we resist you. You know us and you love us. And because of your example, but also because of your presence, you've redeemed us. And so I thank you, Lord, for giving us the ability and the change of will to be able to submit to you and those that you've placed over us. Be pleased with our service, Lord, and may the lost, may the wandering, may the hopeless be so encouraged that we have this purpose in our life and that they have that same invitation to find that same purpose. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.